You're listening to Canada's Court, the first podcast to highlight select oral hearings from the Supreme Court of Canada. Presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association and available on all major podcast platforms. Visit podcast.criminallawyers.ca for more information. Bonjour, watchez, hello, and welcome to Canada's Court a podcast featuring oral submissions from the Supreme Court of Canada. My name is Derek Fox, and I am an Indigenous Associate Lawyer with the Baker Law, practicing criminal defense in the District of Thunder Bay, along the northwest shore of Lake Superior. In this episode, you will hear the oral submissions from the appellant Don Johnson versus His Majesty the King. Mr. Johnson was charged with two counts of first-degree murder of brothers Justin and Jerome Waterman. The three of them were known to be friends. At trial, before a judge and jury, Mr. Johnson denied the crime and denied that he was a shooter. Further, he alleged that a man named Marcus Comsili had likely murdered the brothers. The Crown argued that it was unlikely that Mr. Comsili was a shooter. And at trial, the judge instructed the jury that even if Mr. Johnson was not the shooter, he must be found guilty if there was any intention to assist the shooter. In other words, if he was found to be aiding. After the jury convicted Mr. Johnson, he appealed to the Court of Appeal for Ontario on the basis that the trial judge did not have a factual basis for the party instruction and that a finding of guilt on such was not open to the jury. The majority dismissed the appeal. In his dissenting remarks, Nordheimer J.A. would have allowed the appeal. He was of the view that there is no evidentiary foundation for party liability that the jury could consider. Furthermore, there is no reason to believe that Mr. Johnson would have assisted the shooter in committing the crime if he was not the shooter. Mr. Johnson is now appealing to the Supreme Court of Canada as of right. Please be seated. Uh, I would note uh, for all uh, who are present that uh, Justice Obansawin is participating in these proceedings remotely. Uh, Don Johnson and the King appearing for the appellant, uh, Dirk Durstein and Tanya Barito, appearing for uh, the respondent, Susan Reed. Uh, whenever you're ready, Mr. Durston. Our submissions will be divided into two parts. 
Uh, I will speak to the position that parties to the offence ought not to have been left to the jury, and my colleague, Ms. Barito, will speak to the second issue, that the instructions on parties were flawed. Uh, we say in, the, uh, in our first submission that parties ought not to have been left, that this uh, was essentially a story of two narratives. There was the direct evidence of the accused, who said, of course, that he didn't do it and that uh, he approached relatively, uh, was at a certain distance from, uh, from the proceedings and that he heard shots and ran away. That his uh, colleague, Mr. Kumsel, was a little bit further up and that he gave some colorful language and that they all fled. And that was essentially his narrative. The, uh, the circumstantial case for the Crown consisted of a few things. Video evidence from uh, things that happened around uh, the complex, which showed, among other things, the uh, Waterman brothers uh, and he at very, on various different days, as far off as seven days before. Um, and it also showed uh, four people showing up on that day and then two people eventually running away. There was circumstantial evidence of text messages which showed various different contacts, arrangements and what have you that were being done, robbery planning. Uh, there was motive evidence uh, that came forward about uh, Jerome having at one point or another um, uh, given a statement which implicated the accused. And after the fact conduct, finally, uh, as the fourth big head, um, where the, uh, the two uh, men hold themselves up in his mother's apartment and, um, and stayed there for a little while, changed phones, and it was alleged uh, got rid of a jacket. So that was essentially the nature of the case that was put forward. And you will see um, that uh, being an entirely a circumstantial case, things like motive uh, played a substantial role in that, uh, motive and presence near the scene of that. Now, uh, my friend in her condensed book, and this is the one place I'll actually ask you maybe to, uh, to open something if you have it. My friend's condensed book, um, volume one, tab six, has a map in it. Uh, and it's a useful enough thing. The, just for your interest, the, um, the highlighting there that uh, shows up in gray on your copy is uh, not something which is an exhibit at trial. It was later on shown, uh, the Crown's theory about where it is that the people fled back and forth. But you will see, it's not 100% obvious, but you see it's sort of in the middle there uh, where it says camera 15. You see, you see it on the side there. Do you see that? Um, that's the location of the camera, the, the last camera which you can see um, um, the, anyone coming or going, right? So that you would eventually see the Waterman brothers come down there and you would eventually see the other two running back in that direction. The reason I want to tell you that is that um, this isn't really a locked door mystery, really. Um, so you'll see that that camera is facing essentially in the direction of the top of the page where you see Ravine up there. That's the direction in which it's facing. So it captures people coming out from that door and along. So that the scene of the crime, if you will, is uh, through a couple of doors. There are doors there, other doors along the way. You can sort of see them around a few dipsy doodles, around that corner, through a set of doors, and then there's a little anteroom which go down to a few steps, and then from there, you go off and you go into a parking garage, and the entrance to that parking garage is not directly covered by a camera. So that has some poignancy but, but, in terms but, of the circumstantial but, but, but nature we're, of the case. We're, 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 we're not the triers of first instance. I appreciate that. And, and I just, I mean, it is an appeal, and it is an appeal that follows on uh, the decision of the Court of Appeals. So... I'm just going to invite you to sort of focus things from that perspective, please. Thank you very much. The reason I gave you that uh, somewhat elaborate discussion um, uh, was only to show you the importance of the circumstantial nature of this case, right? 
um, that the, it was a highly circumstantial case and a number of features such as motive and what have you had to play a fair amount into this because the, um, the trier of fact was not in any position to see anybody shooting anybody, what any accomplice did. But, but Mr. Dirtstein, you're at this stage, if I understand the way you're dividing up the labors, you're addressing yourself as to whether there's a simple error of reality to the party liability That's correct, point. Yes. So the error of reality can be grounded in evidence that's circumstantial. I 100% okay, agree. Okay, good. So, so your friend says um, that there was an error of reality rooted, among other things, uh, I don't know if it was camera 15, I suppose it probably was, um, the security camera recorded the appellant at the location of the uh, shootings with a gun in his hand. That was seven days before. Right. But, uh, you know, there, uh, again, not to go too deeply into the evidence, it didn't record him with a gun in his hand. It recorded something which was the Crown's theory was a gun in their hand. The, uh, I, I, there was an extensive cross-examination of all of the people in there. If you, if you moved one step further in the pixelization of that particular thing, that, that little excrescence actually disappears. Right, so, and it also recorded him uh, making shooting gestures at, uh, on the surveillance camera. Again, you know, I appreciate we're not here to retry those other two things. There's, uh, in, no, if you, no. if you so were I'm just to look looking for an, I'm just, I, so I'm just, gonna, I'll ask my question. If we're looking for an air of reality to the idea that, say, the appellant supplied the firearm that was used in the shooting, the appellant scouted out the location of the shootings. Uh, in this apartment building that he knew rather well, his mother lived there, and so on. Is this not circumstantial evidence that would contribute to an air of reality for the party liability argument? That's, that's the suggestion by your friends on the other side. Sure. The way that I would like to address that, Justice, is that uh, not so much at the angle of if it could be demonstrated to the required standard, uh, if there was an air of reality to the fact that the other person shot, uh, then he would amply be an aider. And I concede that absolutely, right? There's no question about that. The question is, is there an air of reality to the other person's shooter? That's, I guess, that's I guess the Mr. question. Uh, as I understand it, Mr. Johnson testified, and he was asked about Mr. Kamsil and took the stated that he didn't think he had any any uh, any reason to harm either of the two brothers. So he could have implicated, I guess, Mr. Cumseal and didn't. And Mr. Cumseal wasn't charged, we understand. So there's no, uh, other than this other fourth person, the, the Doug person, uh, there's no, there was no suggestion that any of the other persons that was there was uh, the shooter. Well... There was a sort of a binary choice. There was the uh, Crown's theory that it was my client and Mr. Kumsel to, so, to whatever unknown uh, extent. Uh, and then there was the direct evidence from the accused who said that I didn't do it. And as far as I know, Mr. Kumsel didn't do it. Because as you'll recall, he said that Mr. Kumsel was further up that corridor, although not all the way he could see him. So he essentially exonerated Mr. Kumsel as well because he said that at all material times he was within his sight. But then he came running back saying, you know, people are busting shots. So, but it's not a locked door 
mystery is the other thing. I mean, you'll recall that during the course of this, um, uh, the trial judge actually asked, you know, should we be charging about, well, what if there were other people who came in there, maybe at the instigation of your client to actually shoot? And he was eventually persuaded that there was no evidence that other people had come in, maybe through the back or through the, uh, uh, the parking area and things like that. There was no evidence of that particular thing. But he did find that there was evidence that you could find that this other person had done this. And the reason why I brought all of these things forward, the motive and all of those a different aspects in my submission, is to show what uh, freight, what necessity, all of that motive and earlier planning and everything like that had to do to allow the jury to believe beyond a reasonable doubt that it was actually he who actually committed the shooting. If you stripped all that away, because we don't know anything about this fourth party, you remember that it was the uh, testimony of the accused that, the, um, that this was Marcus Cumsell, but that was never accepted by the Crown. The Crown vigorously opposed the idea that it was him. So there's no certainty. I mean, if we actually got to this point, we would assume that they had already rejected the testimony of the accused. There's no particular reason why they would reject all the testimony but still believe it was Mr. Cumsell. So this person was an absolute cipher to anybody, right? He could have been Gandhi and he could have been, you know, uh, anybody, right? So. We have no idea about what his proclivities were. We have no idea about anything. And I say that there's absolutely no evidence that he was given a gun at any time. Um, no, not one piece of evidence allowed for the idea that he was ever given a gun. Why do we assume, for example, that he didn't have a gun himself? We don't know anything about this person. He could have been anything. He could have had a 100-page criminal record or anything. But isn't that the entire area of speculation and that we're not, you know, they, you're not allowed to speculate about the fourth unknown person or a fifth unknown person in this context? But I say, um, uh, fundamentally, that when you invite them to say uh, that if you do not uh, accept, because there's, listen, there's a clear area that the jury could walk down, and I concede that, and that they could find conviction based on all of the uh, things that my friends put forward and said, look, he had the motive to do it, he had the opportunity to do it, there he was, he was walking around with something which you could find was a gun, you know, all of those things, he brought them forward, he lured them and everything like that, he's the shooter, he shot him, that's what happened. The Crown brought forward all sorts of other things, maybe toyed with him for a little bit. That's why he shot Justin, for whom he had an animus, and only shot four times. That's why he only shot his brother two times. Sure, that's a, that's a sort of a straight path. You can walk down that path. The question is, fundamentally, if you don't buy into that, right, because that's, that's the easy shot. That's the way you walk down that thing. Is there a basis for a reasonable jury, properly instructed, to come to the conclusion that he didn't but, do it, but, but wait, his confederate Wait, wait, wait a second. Wait a, it sounds like you're arguing unreasonable verdict as opposed to there's a problem with the jury instructions. Well, which is it? I say that it is that the jury ought not to have been, to a certain extent I am, because I'm saying fundamentally that that, er that that area of liability, that is to say, that he, is a, that he uh, aided somebody who actually shot, ought not to have been left to the jury because there's no air of reality. And that's just a fancy way of saying that it wouldn't meet the Shepard test, right? that no reasonable jury properly instructed could find that. Or that, um, and you'll remember the words of this court in Fontaine, for example, that says that, you know, it must always be borne in mind that a reasonable jury properly instructed has to find something beyond a reasonable doubt, because that's a fundamental basis of what we instruct juries. So for that reason, yes, I agree with you. That's exactly what I'm arguing from that perspective, that there is no basis if you strip away all those other things. Because, you know, the person who actually came with him, we don't know if he has any sort of motive. We don't know if he has any sort of animus. He certainly didn't participate in any planning, the Crown themselves said during the course of their argument that this person was a last-minute recruit. That was the Crown's theory. That's what the Crown put to the jury. So this last-minute recruit, there's supposed to be some sort of air of reality that the last-minute recruit 
that we know nothing about uh, was somehow the shooter and that some reasonable jury properly instructed could come to the conclusion of that beyond a reasonable doubt. Because that's the test. If uh, some member of the jury couldn't come to that conclusion beyond a reasonable doubt, it ought not to have been left before the jury as an alternative. So you're, you, the, the Crown, I'll go back to it, paragraph 20 of their factum lists, I think it's seven... <clears throat> Uh, seven pieces of, if that's the right word, for establishing an evidentiary foundation for party liability. They're circumstantial. You're right. They're not slam dunks. You're right. But creating a plan and luring the Waterman brothers to the scene of the murders, they give examples there, present at the scene either as a shooter or as a participant in another way, supplying the firearm, as I mentioned earlier, scouting out and shooting, choosing the location, as I mentioned earlier, providing a hideout after the murders, disposing of evidence, and failing to assist the Waterman brothers. None of these on their own would constitute, I suppose, overwhelming evidence in any way, but they are an evidentiary foundation. That's the theory of the other side up here on appeal. I agree that all of those are solid evidence about the fact that if there was other evidence to show that the other one was the shooter, there's solid evidence to show aiding. I don't have any difficulty with that. Yes, they show if somebody else did that, that he aided them, 100%. The question is, is there any evidence that the other person did it? And in my submission, none of those factors, not one of them, speaks to the fact that the other guy did it. And the, uh, the fact that the other guy did it is necessary for that to be left to the jury because they said that the other guy could have done it, that some member of the jury could have believed beyond a reasonable doubt that the other guy shot, right? Because if they don't do that, it doesn't matter if all of those things amounted to aiding. You have to find that the other guy shot. If you don't find that, in my submission, you don't get to first base in terms of that. And, you know, I suppose that's really where the sort of the rubber hits the road about all those things. Is there any evidence that the other person shot? And for the same reason that his honor found uh, that there was no evidence that the um, uh, that there which could be somebody else, let's say a fifth party, right? Because he was he was talking about that. There was a colloquy about that where he suggested, well, maybe a fifth party could have come along and shot, and maybe I should charge them about that. And eventually he said, well, there's no evidence about that. Uh, there's no real difference between the fifth party and the fourth party on this. The, the crown says, oh, we must have given him the the he must have given him the gun, but I mean that's. That's a, a strange submission, a really weird way. It's a completely bootstrap submission. He's the shooter, therefore he must have been giving him the gun. Well, what's the evidence that he's the shooter? And why would he have to give them the gun? We know nothing. This guy could be Genghis Khan. He could be stuffed with firearms. What's to say that just because of the fact that we imagine that he is actually the shooter, that that means that perforce my guy must have given him uh, the firearm? So in my submission... One, one, of the, one of the reasons the criminal code has these provisions like party liability and aiding and abetting and all the rest is because from time to time there are situations where it's impossible to know exactly how the crime was carried out. But there are pathways in law which are described for ascribing liability even if the Crown cannot pinpoint the exact manner in which uh, events transpired. And I guess you're saying that uh, the, the necessary evidence to embark on one of these pathways, party liability is, is absent. But, you know, uh, I, I guess I'm, the simple point is the Crown doesn't have to give me a movie 
of exactly who did what. The Crown, in order to discharge its burden, uh, has, to, has to align with one of these legal pathways, including party liability. And so I understand your argument is directed to the fact that the pathway wasn't open because there wasn't an air of reality, there wasn't sufficient evidence. But you seem to be merging into this idea that because the Crown can't tell us exactly who did what, no conviction is possible. And you see, that's not, that's not the criminal code. I say the conviction was amply possible uh, for him as a principal for all of the reasons I've said, including motive and what have you. I say that a conviction was not possible on the nominal counsel on the nominal fourth party, that if this was an appeal about that, that there would be no evidence about that. And I just point out to you, listen, I agree, if the evidence was they all went into a room, there was a ruckus and somebody died, they would be a lot closer. They can't put, um, they can't put the other party um, within 50 feet. They can't put them closer than three doors away from, the, uh, from everything as it happened. But I wish to leave my colleague a little bit more time, so those are my submissions. Thank, Thank you. you very much. Good morning, Justices. By way of a very brief overview, the appellant submits that the trial judge's instructions on party liability as an aider were so deficient that the verdicts rendered were unsafe. The appellant asked this court to rely on and adopt the dissenting reasons of Justice Nordheimer to allow this appeal and order a new trial. Now, in my submissions, I want to brief and, and focus on three um, issues. First, that the instructions on party liability should have been separated from the instructions on the shooter. Two, that the trial judge erred in his instructions on the requirements um, related to aiding. And three, that the trial judge erred in not relating the specific facts, excuse me, that applied to uh, the party liability as an aider. Are you, are you going to deal with the proviso as well? Um... Mr. Durstein will be uh, dealing with that in reply. So first, the appellant submits that the trial judge's instructions on aiding should have been dealt with separately from the instructions on liability as the shooter. As stated throughout the pre-charge conference, the main position of the Crown throughout the trial was that the appellant was the shooter. Their entire theory was based on the appellant seeking revenge for the fact that Justin ratted him out two years earlier when they were arrested together and that he had killed his brother, Jerome, by fear of reprisals. This was the focus of the evidence led by the Crown throughout the appellant's trial. Now, we know that the issue of party liability as a nader was raised for the very first time during pre-charge conference, and it was quite obvious in my respectful submission that this was really the fallback position for the Crown and that it only came into play if and only if the jury found that Mr. Johnson was not the shooter. Therefore, as submitted by defense counsel during pre-charge conference, the, the instruction should have been laid out as first whether Mr. Johnson was the shooter and then only deal with um, the instructions on aiding if and only if the jury did not find him to be the shooter. And this is really precisely what defense counsel argue during pre-charge conference, which the submissions are found, and I'm not going to ask you to turn to that portion. But right. uh, yeah. Page 5, volume 14, right? Yes. Okay, yeah, right. Um, is that really what it says uh, at that, it, in terms of, of uh, 
um, what it was, what Mr. Durstein said, uh, the place for the minute dissection of individual pieces of evidence, et cetera. Is, is, is that really, what's, I, I, I guess I don't even understand the tenor of the comment that was made at that, uh, at that pre-charge yes. hearing. So I have it at um, tab seven of my condensed book, page 86, um, which is where Mr. Durstein essentially says, um, at the bottom towards the bottom of the page, the easiest place, um, and this is after he acknowledged uh, the trial judge's ruling that he was going to leave uh, party liability as an aider to the jury as a route to conviction. So Mr. Um, counsel at the time acknowledges that ruling, acknowledges that he's bound by that ruling, but when he discusses the, um, the instructions at least the draft of instructions given by the trial judge, he says, it seems to me that the easiest place, easiest way for them to consider the whole thing is for them to consider first whether or not Mr. Johnson is a principal, and if not, then they should consider whether or not he's a party. And the reason, and then he goes on, and he says, this, this is a safer course of action. It is the entirety of the Crown's theory. The Crown only relies on party as an alternative and barely spent any time on it in my submission. So this is really where I say um, that the appellant made its position very clear on the record that the instructions should be separated. We're clearly dealing with aiding as an alternative theory for the Crown um, and that the jury should have only gotten to that point if and only if they found that uh, Mr. Johnson was not the shooter. And in my submission, um, once defense made that clear, it is now up to the trial judge to make the final determination as to how uh, he is to deal with his instructions. Counsel expressed their position, and clearly the trial judge did not accept that, that submission because ultimately the instructions are dealt with in a vacuum, both with um, Mr. Johnson as the shooter, as the principal, and aiding together when, when he's dealing with the different elements, excuse me, the different elements of, of murder. Um, and in our respectful submission, the fact that these instructions were dealt with in a vacuum only led to confuse the jury. And this is also recognized by Justice Nordheimer at paragraph 93 of his dissenting reasons. Could you, Ms. Barato, pick up on that last point? So, because, you know, we, we have gone through the record. We, we have before us Justice Nordheimer's view of the adequacy of the charge. He feels it's inadequate on the point that you're addressing. He's quite specific about the parts of the, the, this, the separate point in paragraph 182 that he yes. sees as wrong and so on. I'm just mindful of your time. I want you to, and I wonder if you could comment on how the majority, th this difference of opinion between the majority and the dissenting judge. I have it specifically in mind. So paragraph 82, Justice Nordheimer summarizes in advance of, of of his exposition of the errors that he f saw in the charge. The first, the, the error that your colleague uh, rehearsed with us a moment ago, and then very quickly, the separate and apart from that error, he says the instructions that the trial judge gave on party liability were inadequate, and then he goes through the, yes. the points that you're making. 
um, the majority, paragraph 65. I wonder if you could comment on that, because including in that paragraph, Justice George addresses paragraph 182 of the charge, which is really the, you know, the bone of contention, if you will, between yes. them. And so he says, if I've understood, he, he, he doesn't, he's not unmindful that this was uh, perhaps not a, a model uh, for, for Watt's book on charges to the jury, although the charge was for aiding because the evidence that was both for the appellant, both the appellant and the fourth person were seen uh, together going to and from the scene of the killings. It was drafted more in the nature of instructions on co-principal liability or joint enterprise. He, he, he sees the, the problem. What's your comment on how the majority and the dissent differ on this? Yes, thank you. Um, so it's really apparent from the majority's decision that they excuse any flawed, what we say are flawed instruction, by saying that they're more in the nature of co-principal liability, and for that there was ample um, evidence to support that. We completely disagree with that statement. First of all, uh, it is our respectful position that the flawed instructions on party liability as an aider cannot be excused by adding a third route to conviction. Um, first, and it was never discussed in pre-charge conference, neither um, the Crown nor the defence asked the trial judge to instruct on co-principal liability. But more importantly than that, it is our respectful submission that it was not the trial judge's intention on instructing the jury on co-principal liability. And I say that because when we look at the concluding instructions um, on the murder aspect of the trial judge uh, charge, um, is, which is found... Is the mens rea point or on the just causing the death? Concluding, oh, oh, okay. When we look at really the concluding instructions, when the trial judge uh, finishes his point, I'm just going to find um, a quick reference. It's at tab six of the appellant's condensed book, page 84. And this is really sort of the last comment of the trial judge on the uh, murder requirements instructions. And he specifically says, if the Crown has failed to prove that he was a party, so either the shooter or a party, an aider to these offenses, as I have defined these offenses, you must find him not guilty of murder on both counts. So he's not even dealing um, with co-principal liability here. He's concluding his instructions, and it's clear when we look at that comment that he, his intention were to instruct the jury on aiding and um, obviously the shooter as the principal. So the fact that the um, majority of the Court of Appeal excuses his, his errors by saying the instructions are more uh, in the contents of co-principal liability does not get rid of the errors on aiding because it is clear from that comment that the trial judge's in, intent with these instructions was to instruct with aiding. And there are a number, as um, you've mentioned, there's a number of other issues, other flawed instructions, such as the mens rea component that's not dealt with, uh, with aiding, probably within the trial judge's instruction. So we say that um, certainly 
the fact that the instructions in some parts of the, the jury charge appear to be more in the sense of co-principal liability certainly first was not the trial judge's in, intent in the first place, but also does not diminish um, the flawed instructions on aiding because it is clear when he gives this concluding statement to the jury um, that he intended on instructing on aiding and failed to do so properly, uh, which is what the, the appellant respectfully submits. But did it, it, let's say the mens rea um, instruction is flawed. Did yes. it help or hurt your client? Well, the, ultimately, um, it is the appellant's submission that whether we're looking at the um, instructions on co-principal liability or as an aider, it, we're saying that the, the appellant did not benefit from any of these instructions. The position of the defense was clear from the get-go. It was our position that aiding should have never been left to the jury in the first place. But let's say you're wrong about that. Let's say there is an error of reality and aiding ought to have been left. Um, was there prejudice from the mens rea instruction on aiding? We say there was simply because we don't know which route to conviction that the jury took. And if the instructions, if the... If the um, found him not to be the shooter, um, then they did not have the proper requirements to consider for aiding. And that's certainly an important factor when you consider uh, if they are at that point of the equation for them to render a proper verdict. Uh, point is that your colleague makes the point in her factum. If the appellant had the mens rea for co-principal liability, would he not necessarily have had the mens rea for aiding? Is that, I think that's the, the, the point that's made. And we go I mean, maybe back. This is, this is maybe something your colleague's going to address in reply. I don't know. But. But, and we go back to the entire idea that adding a third route to uh, conviction is certainly not the, the solution. It certainly did not benefit the appellant in any way, shape, or, or, or form. And that ultimately what the trial judge did in this case was add three routes to conviction as opposed to only two, uh, when clearly this was not his intention all along. Yeah. But that, that's the majority's view, is that they read in a co-principal element to, to the charge. But it is possible to just read it as a principal and an aider. And then I understand your arguments that the placement wasn't um, ideal, that the, there could have been a tying in of the evidence more directly to aiding. Uh, th this would be a gold standard for sure. Uh, but it, it, it's, it's the mens rea part that is, is, is uh, perhaps more important, um, an error. If it is an error, um, there's, overstate, uh, th there's wrong statements that prejudice the accused because they set a higher burden, and, and there's statements that may um, be wrong, but they don't cause prejudice in the sense that um, it, it, the standard um, against which it's measured um, is, is 
is an easier standard for the accused, if I can put it that way. Right. You know and, what I'm saying. And in your answer, I would invite you to sort of conclude your submissions and that your yes. time has expired. But, Thank you. But, yeah. Yes, no, I appreciate that. Um, and certainly, I mean, obviously our position is that um, we have to look at the totality of the charge as well. And when we, we coupled all of the mistakes that have been made, the charge in itself was only uh, confusing, uh, dealt with additional elements, and it was too confusing for the jury to really follow where the trial judge was going. And when you put all of these errors together, ultimately what it left was three different routes to convictions with improper um, outline of requirements on, um, on the law and what was required for the jury uh, to find the, the appellant guilty. And so uh, when you look at all of the, the way that the charge was set out with the conclusion, concluding statement from the trial judge, we say that the errors uh, really ultimately ended, rendered the, the verdicts unsafe. Thank you, Ms. Barrett. Thank you. So, uh, Ms. Reed, please. Good morning. Um, it's the respondent's position. There are really two main arguments. The first is that there was an ample evidentiary foundation for co-participation by the appellant, either as a co-principal or as a party, uh, if the jury was not satisfied that he was the shooter. And the second main argument is that the, this jury charge was adequate for joint liability. Um, a functional analysis of the overall charge confirms there's no risk that the jury convicted the appellant on a basis that did not attract criminal liability. Uh, there's no basis that to suggest his defense was undermined or that a path to acquittal was blocked. The question is not in my submission, uh, can the Crown prove who the shooter is necessarily in order to establish party liability? The question is, can the jury be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt that the appellant actively participated in some way that whether he was a party. As we know from the authorities, uh, the Crown can prosecute without knowing who the principal is, who the shooter is. So a lot of the emphasis by my friend was on how much we don't know about the fourth man. And to be clear, Mr. Kumsel was identified by the appellant. The Crown never accepted that's who that was. So this fourth man was never uh, established the Crown would submit. Um, the other factual distinction I, I would make, and I, I, I would have to check the record, so I, I make this um, cautiously, I do not believe the evidence was that the appellant always had Mr. Kumsel in his sights and testified that he never left his sights, therefore he never went in the room. Uh, Mr. Uh, the appellant, uh, Mr. Johnson, testified he was, he was well back from the scene, but I don't believe that he ever testified that he saw exactly what the fourth man did. In my submission, this is no different than a Picton or a Thatcher uh, situation uh, in terms of establishing party liability. The error of reality is all set out in the materials, and I've tried to provide um, material in the condensed book to illustrate that. Um, the cell phone chart in my submission is, is important because it demonstrates the ongoing efforts of the appellant to set this up, to connect with the, um, the two victims. 
um, and uh, this constant communication that went on for some time. It's clear that he recruited this fourth person at the last minute, having said to the victims, there's just going to be three of us, nobody else will be there. He didn't want them to bring anyone else to the scene, and yet he himself was content to bring someone. I'm not going to go through the rest of the evidence. You're very familiar with it. Um, uh, I will, though, in terms of that cell phone chart, I'll just uh, put a pin for you on the PDF 196, um, which is where you'll see a series of text messages uh, where you'll see that the appellant is complaining that uh, one of the brothers has told his girlfriend he's going to be with the appellant. Um, he, he's trying to keep this all secret, and he describes trying to be cautious and telling people to delete messages. And that's also where you'll see that message about these rats uh, hard to catch, um, which the Crown argued was part of this motive. Um, so in my submission, there's ample evidence for party liability. So let me turn to the jury instruction. Uh, in my submission, uh, and as the majority found, there really were only two routes to liability that the jury were instructed on, either as the shooter or as an active participant, a co-participant. Uh, and in my submission, there is no reason to conclude that the verdict is not sound um, on, because of the jury instructions. Um, this court's recent decision in uh, Abdullahi, and I hope I pronounced that correctly, is clear. Uh, a charge me needs to be sufficient and correct. It doesn't have to be perfect. Um, we have to take a functional approach, which in my submission, that's what the majority of the Court of Appeal did here. Look at the overall effect of the charge and ask, was the jury properly equipped in the circumstances of the trial to decide the case according to the law and the evidence? So the perspective here is, what did the jury hear? What were they told uh, the questions were for them to decide? It's not whether this satisfies um, the model instructions from, from Justice Watt or would, would get an A on a law school exam. The question is, what was the jury instructed, and, and therefore, what did they find? But there, I, guess, I guess the point that uh, your, your colleagues are, are making, that there, there was errors. Yes. And that if I understood your condensed book correctly, for example, in respect of the mens rea point that we were discussing a moment ago, you seem to say, well, the judge's error in the instruction on mens rea is of no moment, which is, which is an echo of 686.1b. You, see, you seem to be saying, well, there was an error, but it's right. a harmless error. Right. So um, w I had conceded in my factum that the mens rea requirement for a party is not the same as for a principal. That's correct. Uh, and what's interesting is when you look at the pre-charge conference, you can see there, and I've provided that in my materials, there was discussion between counsel and, and the judge as to how this was going to be uh, put to the jury. And the trial judge at one point says very clearly, I, just be clear here, I'm going to make it very clear that the jury is told they have to find that the party has the same intent as the principal. Now we know that's not, strictly speaking, correct. Nobody objected to that, and certainly defense counsel did not object. Not surprising because that, in my submission, inures to his benefit. Um, his client, uh, the appellant, is being treated much like a principal. So that's, in fact, how the jury was instructed. And I agree that is, strictly speaking, not a correct party's instruction. But again, we return to the question, if we look at what the jury was asked to decide, and they were told, you have to find these things, and if not, you must acquit, 
Um, the, the, the reference to find that is in my condensed book. It's at tab 9, and uh, it's PDF 7. And that's where um, the trial judge addresses what, what do you need to find if you're not satisfied that the appellant was the shooter. And it goes over to page, uh, page 8. So in order to find Don Johnson participated in the unlawful acts, and cause these deaths, you, you must be satisfied, or either he pulled the trigger, or he, or acting together with the shooter in a joint endeavor to kill Justin and Jerome, or as part of a joint plan to kill Justin and Jerome, he participated in the killings in some way. It goes on to say, you have to be satisfied beyond a reasonable doubt this was a joint endeavor or a joint plan. Uh, he then, uh, as we go on through the charge, then deals with also with uh, planning and deliberation. So. In my submission, the jury was told they had to find, uh, in order to find participation, either as the shooter or they had to find a joint endeavor and joint plan, uh, that the appellant had the intent for murder, it's clear from the instruction, and that he planned and deliberated the murders. So in my submission, just like in Picton, this instruction really um, encompasses party or it overcomes or surpasses any party instruction. And that if the jury made those findings, which we must assume they did, because that's how they were instructed, uh, an additional party instruction would have uh, really added uh, nothing and certainly does, did not give the appellant a uh, route to um, an acquittal, an included offense, or things like that. So if we disagree with your theory, does the curative proviso have a role to play? Um, in my submission, I think it, it, it does. Um, when you read the majority decision, and I'm not sure where to look, I guess that's hard because if I do this, then you have my back. So I will look this way, if you don't mind. Um, uh, the, the majority really does a mixture. It finds in the, at the end of the day the, any error was harmless and it had no effect. And so the, the majority doesn't see the need to apply the cured proviso. On the other hand, one could uh, infer that uh, this was a case in which the cured proviso could well apply. Um, again, because uh, the error in, at the end of the day would not have affected the verdict. Was and it, the evidence itself was, was powerful. Was it argued on the, um, before the appeal? Because clearly Justice Nordheimer doesn't address it. So. You're quite right. And, and the reason is because a number of these errors, and in particular the jury instruction, uh, was not argued in the Court of Appeal. Uh, the, the focus of the appeal in the Court of Appeal was the error of reality to party liability but not the errors in respect of the jury instruction itself. Um, it, you know, I think in, that, in part that explains, when you look at the dissent, uh, Justice Nordheimer focused as one, I think he describes one of the most significant errors, the failure to review the evidence that would support party liability. Well, the, the problem is that the answer to that is in the pre-charge conference, where you can see counsel is asking uh, that that not be done because it's a roadmap, as, as my friend described it, and ask the court to remove it. And when you look at the draft instructions, you can see the paragraph changes and the uh, explanation for how you can be a party is removed. Um, so Justice Nordheimer didn't have the benefit of those instructions. And that's why you don't see reference to that in the dissent, which is, which is curious. You would expect to see that. And you're arguing harmless error rather than an overwhelming case, because you refer into your factum to the all the evidence. Yeah, um, I, I, well, I, I think both, 
both can apply. I think the, the evidence itself is, is powerful. Um, the fact that the appellant is present, we have this evidence the week before, which in my submission supports an inference that he had a gun and he was rehearsing in the basement hallway. The, the text message evidence, which is dense and complex, and that's why I tried to provide that chart for you, it, it demonstrates a concerted action on his part, a plan to, to connect and to lure and to hide what he was doing uh, repeatedly. Um, that, that was very complex evidence that the jury uh, worked through, but in my submission, uh, propels this case uh, towards a, a, strong, uh, a strong conviction, a strong belief in conviction. Um, I'm at, I'm trying to understand the time I'm looking at. Does that say I have 18 minutes left? I've been moving very quickly. Um, oh, good. All right. Um, so my, in terms of uh, co-principal liability, I, I'll just make the point, uh, in addition to there being error of reality to party liability, lest there be any doubt, there's error of reality to co-principal liability, and I, I rely on this court's recent decision in, in Strathdee in support of that principle. Uh, where co-principal liability flows whenever two or more individuals come together with an intention to commit an offense, are present during the commission of the offense, and contribute to its commission. The Strathdee decision is a powerful support for the idea of co-principal liability. Um, Picton, again, a case which talks about acting in concert, and, and this is exactly the kind of language that we see here. You know, Strathdee was a case where there was one fatal wound, in our case, we have at least six shots, so we're not even in that area where there was some debate at some point. The suggestion that co-principal liability was a surprise to the defense in, in my submission is refuted when you look at the jury instruction that had been prepared for the first trial, because of course this case had, been, uh, had gone all the way to the jury charge before it, there was a mistrial. And this is a charge by Justice Dambrot, and I've provided that in the materials. It's interesting when you look at that instruction, and, and, that, and the reason why it, 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 it is relevant is because the trial judge in, in this case makes a comment that he relied on it to fashion his own charge. Justice Dambrot talked about um, co-participants. He, he actually never did uh, use the word party. He talked about co-participants in his charge. Um, but this, this uh, focus was clear in my submission from the outset. Um, and... Um, But isn't it uh, proper to make sure that we know whether it's principal, co-principal, or party? Sure. But I guess what I would say, too, is that the, let's not forget, this draft instruction, it went through two drafts. This jury check charge went through two drafts and a final before it was delivered. And counsel all had an opportunity to review it and make comments, and they did. I think we had at least two days of a pre-charge conference. So the... The manner in which this instruction, uh, this instruction was structured uh, was, was something counsel was well aware of. And, you know, uh, counsel never made the objection at the time <clears throat> that, hold on, hold on, co-principal liability, this is a surprise to me. That was never an objection made at trial. Uh, counsel never um, uh, said, I, you know, I, I'm t I, I've, been, I've been completely taken by surprise. Um, in terms of the um, suggestion that, that this somehow undermined well, the defense... Well, I mean, that, that may be, 
but if yes. we can focus on the effect of any errors, um, that's more important in sure. my analysis as to what the jury would be led to believe rather than what counsel did or didn't do. Well, the only reason I make the point about counsel's lack of objection is because it is some indication, but not the only indication, that there was no perception by counsel there was unfairness here, that they had a concern that the jury was going to be sent in the wrong direction. They made their objection on, on error of reality, absolutely, to party liability. Yeah, just, just to add to what Justice Martin said, I mean, in, in our jurisprudence, including Abdullahi, the emphasis has really shifted away from uh, was there an objection as to whether was the jury given the right tools to do the job? Sure. W however they got there, right? Yes. And if they were given the tools to do the job, even if it wasn't a perfect jury instruction, that's okay. If by complete inadvertence, goodwill on everybody's part, they were not given the tools, then it has to be done again. Absolutely. I, 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 I would not purport to make a different submission. You're quite right. Um, uh, I've dealt with, I think, the, uh, the uh, concession that the, the instruction on the intent for a party, while the general instruction on party was correct, when the trial judge got to the point of dealing with, in this case, I, I agree, uh, there was a melding, and really that uh, requiring him to have the intent to commit the offense. Uh, but again, uh, if the jury made that finding, then uh, there, there is no prejudice to the appellant. Um, uh, and I adverted to the, the, the point about uh, the failure to review the evidence in support of party liability, and I've provided the materials in uh, my condensed book, uh, the portions of the pre-charge conference, uh, just to make the point defense counsel asked for that to be removed, uh, to ask, ask for those specific um, elements to be removed, uh, and the trial judge then acceded to that. Uh, but those points were summarized by the trial judge in the Crown's position, and um, of course, the Crown also reviewed it in their closing. And as we know from uh, Abdullahi and, and Thatcher as well, the court doesn't have to review the evidence repeatedly uh, on each point. And in this case, the evidence was really the same with respect to shooter or party. And it, it, there was no need to, to repeat it. Um, I was going to do with the curative proviso. I think I've done that by trying to answer your questions as best as I can. I have no other submissions unless there are any other questions for me. Thank you. Thank you, Ms. Reed. Mr. Uh, Gersten in reply. Um, I have uh, two areas that I'd like to uh, draw to your attention. Um, when you were, um, uh, that uh, mens rea point that you were bringing up, I would uh, commend to you the uh, passage from um, Justice Nordheimer, uh, which is found on page 43 of our condensed book, um, paragraphs 94 and 95 of the, uh, of the actual judgment, uh, where uh, what was actually set out is at the bottom of page 43 at page 94, that's from the charge, and uh, we would adopt the, um, the uh, discussion which takes place at paragraph 95, which is in the dissenting reason about why it is that that's, um, that that's prejudicial. So uh, just in terms of that, uh, that part. Uh, I would appreciate that uh, in, within this charge, I don't think it's disputed, that within this charge at certain places uh, there were passages that were, um, uh, that were correct and that at other places and there are the passages that they're not correct. I'd just like to inject one other piece is that modern juries all have jury charges with them. 
And it's almost, it's interesting that, you know, whatever that, whatever that means and whatever that, but, you know, they're sitting there with this charge, almost metaphorically, but we're never going to be there, but we can only assume in front of them and somebody will ask a question and they go off and read it. But what passage is it that they read? Do they read paragraph 94 or do they read paragraph 162? And that's never really all that clear. And it's a dangerous game. And I say this specifically because I was uh, invited to, uh, to deal with this in terms of the proviso. It's a difficult game to say, well, if you don't give them the right tools, to use Justice Rose's words, if you don't give them the right tools, uh, paragraph 94, as a matter of fact, you sort of mislead them a little bit. And then you do give them the right tools of paragraph 150. 56, is that enough? Right? Because they might very well. I mean, they're not legal specialists. They don't necessarily read everything compendiously. We assume that they read everything. But if the charge itself is dichotomous, if it says, go to the left at paragraph 94 and go to the right at paragraph 122, you know, can we be sure that they actually read those two things harmoniously? But I guess there are two, there are two points, right? You could say um, giving, a, giving the whole of the charge a functional read, um, the the error is washed out by what came before where it was done correctly, and you don't need to go to the proviso. And then there's a second path. You say, well, there is a conflict. It's confusing, to use one of the words used in, in the dissent, and uh, that is an error in law. And as an error in law, then the question arises, can we see that error in law as harmless. Yes. And, and so that, so we need to hear you on, on that. For all of the reasons that, I mean, the, the, the best example is what was, that's why I wanted to put forward Justice Nordheimer's uh, very careful thought out passage, for example, at paragraph 95, and indeed the entire dissent. But uh, in terms of the, the discussion that was raised by Justice Martin about the mens rea and everything, that's the specific answer that we would like to put forward. Um, and we say that it's not harmless. And I'd just like to say, in general, that this was not an overwhelming case. Uh, and I would, I would dispute my friend's characterization. It's an entirely, there were, there were areas in which the Crown could find that. There were certainly things that were there. The, the, it's not quite as stark as the you know, some of the pictures would actually put forward. It is an entirely circumstantial case. In my submission, the area that, it's, uh, that it was an overwhelming case and could not have achieved other thing, that arm of the, uh, of the um, proviso in my submission would not have any application. And that uh, it's a dangerous game in my submission to walk down the path that if the jury is poorly instructed on something central to the combining of the guilt of the accused, to say that, well, maybe if they had read it compendiously with this other thing, they would have preferred the better one. Why would they? Uh, and that, therefore, they would have necessarily come to the right road in my submission. That's not a safe way. And the, the final passage, which I'd like to bring to, uh, to your attention, I'll do this very briefly, uh, is found at paragraph 74 of the decision. This is the majority decision. Um, and th this is where they say that once you reject it, and this is the way that they could sort of square the circle, notwithstanding the fact that it wasn't properly charged, they say that once you reject the story of the accused, then there was only one available inference in relation to the fourth person, and that was that he was there for the same purpose as the appellant, which was to assist in the killing. In my submission, that is an entirely, I say this with great respect, erroneous possibility. That is not at all the case. In my submission, anybody could come up with a different Villa Roman idea about what they were. The Waterman brothers on the Crown's own theory were being lied to about why they were there. Why was there necessarily an implication that this Confederate who was brought in at the last second was told every piece of what was happening? Maybe he was saying it was going to be a beating. Maybe he was saying it was going to be a robbery of the Waterman brothers. Maybe he was told it was going to be something else. There are any number of other reasons why a person brought there at the last minute would not necessarily share the perspective, even if you entirely dispute uh, every piece of what, uh, of what the appellant said. Uh, it could have been for any number of reasons. And in my submission, 
uh, paragraph 74 and, in fact, 76, which I don't have time to take you to, uh, both fall afoul of that, uh, of that point of law. Okay. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mr. Gersten. Um, the Court will retire to uh, deliberate. I would ask counsel to remain available to us. Uh, the panel would like to express its thanks to counsel for their able and thoughtful uh, submissions. We have deliberated, and we are ready to uh, render our decision. The reasons for decision will be provided by Justice Casera. Thank you, Justice Rowe. We are all of the view that the majority in the Court of Appeal was correct to conclude that party liability is properly left to the jury by the trial judge. The evidence on the record provided party liability with an air of reality. We agree, however, with Nordheimer J.A. dissenting that the trial judge erred in law in his instructions on party liability. In one part of the charge, the judge gave instructions that resembled co-principal liability, but said he was instructing on aiding. In other parts of the charge, the jury was given partially correct instructions on aiding. We share Nordheimer J.A.'s view that the jury was never clearly told that the appellant would have needed to know that the principal intended to kill the victims in a planned and deliberate manner in order to be liable for first-degree murder as an aider. That said, we would apply the curative proviso in Section 686.1b.3 of the Criminal Code because these errors were harmless. There is no reasonable possibility that the jury would have reached a different verdict had these errors not been made. See R against Abdullahi uh, at paragraph 33 and R against Sarazin at paragraph 25. The evidence that supported party liability was the same as the evidence for co-principal liability. Moreover, the appellant's defense was not undermined uh, by the jury charge. Accordingly, we would dismiss the appeal. Thanks for listening to Canada's Court, presented by the Criminal Lawyers Association. A full webcast version of the oral argument featured in today's episode can be viewed from the Supreme Court of Canada website at scc-csc.ca or obtained from the court directly. Other episodes are available on all major podcast platforms or by visiting podcast.criminallawyers.ca. The Supreme Court of Canada is not affiliated with this podcast and did not produce or participate in its creation.